Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on our equity market assumptions and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Kevin Collin, client advisor within the UK and Ireland institutional business, and with me today are Stephen Macklow-Smith, portfolio manager, European Equity Group, and Patrick Schovitz, global strategist within multi-asset solutions. Okay, welcome Stephen and Patrick. Thank you for joining us to discuss your equity assumptions in this morning's segment. I suppose I'd like to start with a general question, and what would you characterize as the key changes that you see over the forecast period that you've covered in your piece, particularly in the context of interest rate normalization? Thanks, Kevin. I mean, we are talking about equity assumptions here, but I think from the from the whole structure of the capital market assumption, it, it is the key change, is interest rate normalization, as has been the expectation for several years in our capital market assumption, that at some point we will get back to a more normal level of interest rates, that central banks will get away from these emergency levels of interest rates. I guess the the thing to bear in mind is, while we think it will normalize, we think it'll normalize very, very slowly. And um, where that would manifest itself in uh, an equity market assumptions context is that a context of low interest rates for a long time probably provides a little bit of a boost to um, warranted valuation levels on the equity markets. And that's certainly something we've we've taken into account here of course with interest rates rising one wouldn't want to get get carried away on on um, being too generous on equity market valuation but it's certainly something where we perhaps on the occasion have have rounded up conversely comparing uh, equities with other asset classes clearly an environment of rising interest rates will hurt pure duration asset classes so something that you see throughout the capital market assumptions is that fixed income return assumptions are even lower compared to history than, than the equity assumptions would be, which themselves are, are fairly low. But it's, it's your pure duration asset classes such as treasuries that will see, obviously, the losses from, from rising interest rates here. And then it'll obviously change by region as well, perhaps counterintuitively, it's always the regions where interest rates rise the fastest that actually will see better fixed income returns because you're actually much better off making your duration loss quickly and then earning back, making back for those losses once you've hit a higher level of equilibrium interest rates. But generally, I think that is the biggest driver of a lot of the numbers in, in the capital market assumptions is that expectation that eventually we will get back to a new normal in interest rates, even if that new normal is still lower than historic averages. It's just worth picking up, I think, Kevin, on on this point about how there's a differential rate of of acceleration in interest rates around the world, because our sense is that when we were writing this was that the ECB would be lower for longer and would indeed continue to accommodate, and they confirmed that in December. And therefore, you are likely to see a pickup in interest rates in the States months, if not years, before you see a durable pickup in interest rates within the Eurozone. In the UK, there's a slight hostage to fortune here because we don't know the specifics of what's going to happen in 2017 with the forthcoming trade negotiations. But our sense is that the Bank of England is inclined to be dovish for longer now, particularly given those uncertainties. And so you're going to get this differential moves in interest rates around the world. It's also worth flagging up that 
one of the changes over the last seven years is that asset markets have become extraordinarily sensitive to changes in interest rates. So any statement made by a central banker is combed over for hidden meaning about exactly what that means for the likely path of short-term interest rates. And I think that in the, the process of policy normalization, that probably is going to mean that you'll have greater volatility within long-term assets, such as sovereign, uh, tenure sovereign. And I guess one thing to, to throw in as well is something that we certainly see if, if you look at the whole set of numbers is that asset classes have reacted to this new environment of low interest rate. Well, it's not so new anymore, but you know, equities are much more behaving like corporate bonds used to behave. A lot more of your returns these days comes from dividend yields and, and share buybacks. Whereas corporate bonds give you returns much more closely to what treasuries used to be, and treasuries give you returns that are much closer to, to cash. So everything has sort of shifted one notch in that direction. I think what you're saying then is you see a fairly gradual normalization of rates, and that leads to some of your thoughts around expectations for growth. Now, within your work in the assumptions, the predictions for growth are fairly anemic compared to what we've been used to before the financial crisis. Uh, could you expand on that, Steve? Yeah, I think we're recognizing that the headwinds that have existed over the last seven years, some of those are structural and are likely to persist. Um, so if we take those in turns, and just sort of stepping back one moment, I think one of the strengths of the long-term capital market assumptions process is the way in which it is very, very process-driven. So there are building blocks that sit behind all of the forecasts that we're making for asset classes. And if you disagree with us on asset class return, then you're going to disagree with some of the assumptions that we're making in the building blocks. And, you know, a lot of the discussion that we had in preparing the book was precisely about that, those background building blocks. And within the book itself, there are some really good deep dive essays into exactly what's driving those. So if we just take the background to our weaker growth forecast first, one of the things that we note is that demographics remains a headwind for most developed countries. Not so much in the United States, because there a lower birth rate is balanced out to a great extent by immigration. Although, you know, in parentheses, we have to wait and see whether the US policy on immigration alters over the course of this year with the, with the, income, mm. the, the incoming president. But I think if you look elsewhere in Japan, demographics remains a significant headwind to growth. And in Europe, demographics turned into more of a headwind a few years back. And it's just going to remain a headwind over the whole 10 to 15 year forecast horizon that, that, that we make. So, you know, and the reason why demographics is so important is that if you think about an economy in a stylized way, in effect, real GDP growth is, and, and productivity growth is generated by those in work. And as more people retire, basically, you're going to have less of a boost to productivity from retirees as they become a greater proportion of the population. Again, you know, by way of sort of sideline, there's, that has a very interesting impact on politics, because if the priority becomes protecting the pension interests of the older generation, then, you know, there's a, there's a whole new thrust that you're going to see in political discussion over that period. I think the second headwind that we see is from productivity growth. Now, productivity growth since the great financial crisis has been quite a long way below long-term averages. We think there'll be a recovery. We don't think that the future will look like the immediate past, but we don't think you're necessarily going to get back to, say, that 2 to 2.5% tailwind from productivity growth that we were seeing in the good times in the, uh, the latter half of the last century. And again, you know, there is a, a, a thematic essay that looks into reasons why this may be happening, uh, one of which is that there seems to be uh, some kind of investment substitution effect, because one of the side effects of lower long-term interest rates has been to encourage corporates to look more at their capital structure rather than making long-term investment decisions for what looked like a, a re relatively poor return on investment. 
The second area of productivity that, that's very difficult to forecast is the next kind of big technological change. And one of the things that we refer to within the book is the way in which some of the innovations recently have actually detracted from growth by hollowing out assets. You know, we think of Amazon hollowing out retailing or Airbnb hollowing out hotels. We're about to go uh, into an area of autonomous driving. We'll have to see what that, what impact that has on productive assets in, in the automotive sector. So, you know, there are question marks around that. But as I say, you know, we feel fairly optimistic that actually productivity is going to recover, even if only because you get into a more normal interest rate environment. And then the third thing that we think will be a significant headwind is we've seen an accumulation of debt in various areas around the world, particularly on government balance sheets in developed markets, but then also on corporate balance sheets in emerging markets. And there will need to be a workout there. At the moment, debt's not a really huge headwind because interest rates are so low. So the cost of servicing that debt has been low. And in that sense, we have to pay tribute to where which central banks have operated monetary policy. But as interest rates normalize, that debt will slowly become more expensive and that will need to get worked down. So it could be that cash flow is devoted more to servicing and paying down debt than to real investment. So there's a balance that's going to be struck there. So for all of those reasons, we think that the growth picture is slightly worse than we've seen. There is, though, a, a distinction between developed markets where growth in absolute terms is fairly weak and emerging markets where growth looks significantly better in nominal terms. And the reason that we think about growth in nominal terms is that that maps fairly well onto growth in corporate revenues. So, you know, there are headwinds out there, but we don't think that the future is, you know, entirely difficult. I'd say the, the other thing to also add to that is, you know, Stephen is saying that demographics is a real key driver behind this. And it's not just in developed markets where demographics are negative. It is actually true for large chunks of the emerging world as well. That population growth is just a lot lower than it used to be. Now, most emerging markets, if not all of them, still have that benefit of catching up to what you know economists call the technological frontier. So they have productivity gains still to come from essentially adopting best practice from developed markets. But overall, if, if you look at where that comes out, we think you're going to get about 3% um, real growth extra or faster growth in emerging markets than in developed markets. So, you know, that's, that's still significantly better in over the last couple of years since the global financial crisis, that probably was running at more like 2%. But if you think about the, you know, the boom, go-go years of the early 2000s, it was probably more like 5%. So we do think that emerging markets can widen the gap in, in growth outperformance a little bit over the last couple of years. But again, in keeping with what Stephen was saying, it's not back to the go-go years. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, you raise an interesting point on investment substitution and the impact on corporate practice around capital structure. And I know, Patrick, you've done a lot of work in the past on uh, dilution and issues like that. So in terms of the source of returns in developed markets in particular, are those payout ratios that we've seen sustainable? It depends on which market you're talking about. You know, there, there are areas of the world, and we'll get onto this later when we talk about equity market returns, where profitability has been under structural pressure, and Europe is a very, very obvious example of that. I think that, you know, one of the points that, that we make about for instance, Japan, is that there we believe that corporate behavior will need to change in order to repay more out of the capital structure to shareholders, simply because it's one of the key planks of abonomics. And, you know, our sense is that that, that money can be put to more productive work by shareholders than, than by companies. But it varies from region to region. I'd say if you, if you look at the US, where people are most concerned about whether uh, that buyback behavior is sustainable, it isn't at current levels. 
to be honest, the US market is probably paying out three and a half percent, something like that, of, of market capitalization. Our assumptions assume basically two percent. And we think at that level, yes, yes, it is sustainable. But it is pretty tough to assume that any market can pay out more, uh, more than 100% of its earnings for any sustained period of time. So, no, we don't assume that, but we do think it is going to stay substantial. It's worth noting, though, that in the US, again, there is this big unanswered question about how the tax code in the future right. is going to look exactly, because clearly uh, Mr. Trump, the, the, the incoming president, has referred to the fact that he'd like to see greater investment within the United States. One of the impediments to that is the tax code, and he's, you know, he and his advisors have talked about the need to make changes to the tax code in order to prevent that impediment to investment. So we'll have to see how that works out. And that is certainly, I mean, as, as uh, we were saying, productivity growth has been weak. And in the article that uh, we have in the book that, that looks at that, I mean, one of the conclusions we, we clearly do reach is that low investment is part of the answer, at least. And that's actually something that we do think will at least also partly recover, which is why we're more optimistic on productivity than, than some. But that is clearly an assumption in there. So, Patrick, on the productivity conundrum, if I can call it that, um, would, would you have some comments? Well, you know, productivity is sort of uh, the proverbial $64,000 question because if, if you're completely honest, economists have no idea how to uh, model productivity because, in essence, it, it involves forecasting what technological advances we might make next year. And, you know, wish anyone good luck um, with trying to forecast what, uh, you know, might come out of the tech sector, for instance, in California. But if you look at how economists tend to model this. They look at long-run averages, and over the long run, productivity growth tends to be very, very mean-reverting. So, And that's certainly a big factor in our models where we say, okay, well, it has been terrible productivity growth since the financial crisis, but the long-run trend is also pretty stable. So, you know, you kind of aim bet between those two, but every year that you underperform the long-run trend, obviously, you're going to have to give a little bit more weight to that recent experience. Now, why that is, you know, a lot of theories have been advanced. They go from, you know, global savings glut, um, people not, not investing enough, to things, uh, arguments such as Robert Gordon makes, that all the big inventions have been made and that anything we, we invent these days is just not going to be as radical as indoor plumbing or something like that. Um, now, we would uh, not take an explicit view on that, but there, there's a myriad of theories out there. All we can say is we observe that it has been very weak recently, and we do think at least the investment side of it should get better. So we do assume some sort of recovery, but certainly not a full recovery to, say, the experience that we had for most of the 20th century. So in a more, should we say, challenged um, environment for returns, what role does active management play and why is it so important? What you're going to see over the next five to six years is a reversal of some of the, the trends that you've seen previously and particularly on the interest rate side. So I think during the seven years after the, the great financial crisis, people have become used to interest rates being lower for longer. And that had a huge impact on stock selection and sector allocation within equity markets. Patrick's already referred to equities behaving a little bit more like corporate bonds. But I think that got taken to an extreme in certain sectors where long duration assets in things like food manufacturing and pharmaceuticals, which were viewed as, as having a fairly robust and, and defendable revenue stream, 
because interest rates were so much uh, lower, people were much happier to pay pretty rich multiples for those sectors. And as part of that, they also felt that uh, I think they were less risky. And large sectors of the market, for instance, in the financials area and in the cyclicals area, were out of favour for a very extended period of time. And if we're right about interest rates normalising, and just as a point of observation, since uh, September when we struck our forecasts, uh, we've proven remarkably right. I don't think we expected to be this right this early. But uh, I think what you've seen is a very significant rotation within equity markets. And of course, that's precisely the thing that active managers can benefit from. I'd make one other point, which is that on the bond side, and I know this is more an equity call, but it's important to note that that for fixed income managers, if we are going to see this change in behavior with interest rates normalizing, yield curve steepening, bond manager is going to need to be very adroit to be short duration while that process is taking place, and then as long, very long duration thereafter in order to recoup the higher coupons that Patrick was talking about earlier. If overall returns are just lower... Than, than history would suggest, and if people have target returns that, that they need need to meet, um, you know, just mathematically, if your pure beta return isn't quite going to hit what whatever your requirement might be, alpha just has to be a larger part of the story. Now, you know, that may be a big ask, but uh, we think, you know, at least plugging or plugging part of that gap should, should come from alpha, if, even if it probably can't plug the whole gap. Okay, thank you. One sector question, if I may, uh, financials in Europe in particular. I know this is a long-term exercise, but uh, do you see significant changes there of late? Speaking as, as someone who, who spends most of his time looking at, at, at Europe, financials has been one of those areas that's been a source of huge headlines over the last seven years. I think, personally, I would recognise that European authorities were slightly slower to recapitalise their banking system than they perhaps could have been, and certainly slower than authorities in the UK and the US. But we're sitting now in January 2017, and to my mind, the last of those emergency recapitalizations is in the process of taking place right now, which is the situation in Italy. So actually, you know, I think um, that you would need to acknowledge when you look at the numbers that core equity tier one in the banking sector in Europe, in other words, you know, the the core shareholders equity that the banks need as a backstop against crises, that's been largely rebuilt. It's pretty much doubled as a percentage of assets since the depths of the crisis. And, you know, my sense is that a lot of the direction of travel of policy over the last two to three years has been to shore up the robustness of the European banking system. And I think, you know, we're pretty much there. And credit numbers over the last 12 to 18 months suggest that the extension of credit into the economy is recovering as well. So, yes, you know, cautiously, I think that there is better news there. And if you think about the valuation of European banks, most of them traded at still at a discount to their book value. Now, that's partly an acknowledgement that it might be difficult to make a decent return on equity in the future. And certainly, you're very unlikely to see returns on equity from European banks or indeed banks anywhere that compare with what you were seeing in 2005, 2006. But that was a point at which leverage in the the banking sector was extremely high. We know that's not going to be the case in the future. But nevertheless, there is still scope for a decent recovery in return on equity in a lot of European banks. And I think that the valuation doesn't take that fully into account. Thank you. Um, The FX backdrop has been a key driver in recently, particularly, um, let's say, the uh, performance of the dollar has had, had an impact Do you think that we're coming back to more long-term values in FX and what impact will that have on on your assumptions? So, yeah, 
you're quite right, Kevin, that the dollar is still a big story. And actually, that hasn't changed much from the previous set of numbers. The, the way we look at FX in the framework is, is to start off fair value. So it's a purchasing power parity starting point where we say the same bundle of goods, as an economist would say, kind of has to cost the same thing everywhere in the world. That'll give you an implied set of exchange rates. We look at relative inflation rates, etc. But we do assume that in the long run, exchange rates have to come back to fair value. We're talking about a 10 to 15 year time frame. We think that's long enough for valuations to normalize. Now, if you look at that, um, you would say the US dollar probably looks somewhere between 10 and 15 percent overvalued. And that hasn't really changed over the past year. Now, if you look at fair value, you will logically conclude that the dollar has to weaken from here. With what's been going on in markets over the last couple of weeks since the US election, you know, you'd probably have to acknowledge that that's unlikely to happen in year one, or maybe not even in year two. But over the long run, we would expect the dollar to weaken. And that's really the key call. If you look at, uh, across currencies, we've got the dollar probably somewhere between one to one and a half percent depreciation for the dollar against most of the other major currencies. And when you then come back to how does that work in an equity context, well, most of our models are done in a local currency context. And then, you know, most equity investors, by and large, look at their returns in unhedged terms. So it's obviously going to have a fairly big impact on, on what you're going to get. And, you know, to cut a long story short, if you're a US dollar based investor, it makes sense to invest anywhere but in US dollar based currencies, because you're going to get presumably that boost from a strengthening non-dollar currency. Vice versa, actually, US dollar assets don't look particularly attractive, say, for a European investor, at least on an unhedged basis. Then, of course, you need to take into account, okay, what's that going to do to company fundamentals in each region? So if we expect European companies to face a, a strengthening euro, or perhaps more pertinently UK companies to actually face a recovering pound, then you're obviously going to have to look at what, what is that going to do to margins. Although, to some degree, I think what the recent times have, have taught us is that actually the impact of currencies on that isn't nearly as large as you'd, um, as you'd think. And indeed, in the UK, for instance, that hasn't even fed through into the numbers yet. But we certainly do take that into account. So the big story is really that the dollar should weaken over our 10 to 15 year time frame. And I guess I'd caveat as well. That you're not going to get one or one and a half percent nice and smoothly over every year. The way currencies behave is you're going to get zero, 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 and then you're going to get a five or ten percent move in a very short space of time. But we think it's an important consideration that people will will have to put into into their assumptions and into their models. It's I mean it comes back to the point that we were making about active management. That kind of currency volatility along with interest rate volatility means that as an equity manager you really have to watch out for some of these macro indicators for the impact it's gonna have at a portfolio level. And picking up on Patrick's point about how the move in sterling hasn't yet really translated through into corporate behavior. It has, though, translated into a performance within the UK stock market, where the international companies have done very, very well since the referendum, slightly at the expense of more domestic-facing companies. Stephen, we've been waiting for a while now for profitability to come through to maybe the extent that we would like. And in that context, where in the world is there scope for corporate margins to rise? Thanks, Kevin. I mean, just, just going back to the building block, 
point. Uh, the way that we think about margins is, is in a relatively stylized way, which is that we take the most recent margin and then we assume that that regresses to a mean over the forecast horizon. So in a way, the expectations that are embedded within our equity market return assumptions are as much about the starting point as they are about the end point. Uh, and on that, we've got U.S. margins coming down a little bit because U.S. profitability clearly recovered extremely strongly after the great financial crisis. And it is above average, and therefore there is scope for that to come down just a little bit. But the, one of the areas where we think margins will recover is, is in Europe. So we've talked already about the way that pressure on financials has eased. But I think that when people look back at European profitability over the last seven years, they kind of overlook the impact that falls in commodity prices had on large quoted uh, European companies. And that was especially the case in the UK market. So you've got a blend of margins recovering for financials and for commodities companies. And we think that that will be a tailwind for quoted European equities. And that is most significantly the case in the UK, where margins were particularly badly hit for large commodities and energy companies. I think, you know, more broadly, though, there is this sense in which because activity has been fairly tepid in the eurozone, although companies have done very, very well to defend their margin by cutting costs, and you see that in, in repeated quarterly earnings seasons, where even if there's a miss on revenue, you get a beat on, on profits, which means the margin has been defended. Because there's been very little growth in the top line, companies haven't been able to benefit from any kind of corporate leverage that they generate. And I think that with our forecasts for nominal growth recovering, particularly for the Eurozone, there is scope for precisely that corporate leverage to be seen. And I guess 2017 is a test year for that. So we are expecting that you will see earnings growth of high single digit, low double digit for the Eurozone. And, you know, we wait for the evidence of confirmation. But, but at the moment, the picture is looking fairly encouraging there. I guess Japan is an interesting subject in this context. As Stephen said, our, our approach is to look at history and uh, assume some sort of regression from current levels back to history. Now, in Japan, that's very, very difficult, given that margins have almost exploded over the last couple of years, more than doubling, and reaching levels that Japanese companies in the past have never been able to sustain for any period of time. Now, one could make the argument that that's exactly what Abenomics is trying to do, to actually force companies into running themselves more for shareholders and be more profitable. Or one could be cynic and saying, this is all done, this is all the effect of a weakening yen. And in fact, to reach US levels, Japanese margins could probably roughly double again from here. So one could make a positive case here as well, which would probably be um, a little bit aggressive. But that's certainly one area where we, um, you know, we assume not much change because we don't know what the truth is here. But that's certainly an area that we really need to watch over the next few years where this is going, whether we really do see an improvement in, in underlying corporate behavior. It's just worth noting on that, that Japanese point that you know, we were saying earlier how payout ratio actually we think in Japan will improve. So that's the flip side, if you like, of this pressure on margins. And more broadly, just sort of rounding out the picture for, for other equity areas. Um, one of the things that we note as a, as a point of departure, you know, when we think about starting points, is the way in which a lot of emerging market profitability in those equity markets and indeed growth for the economies as a whole has been under pressure precisely because of the, the, the weakness in commodity prices that you've seen in the last two to three years. And given our expectation that commodity prices recover, that pressure then eases. And it's one of the reasons why we expect a better equity market performance from some of those more commodity-heavy uh, areas. Now, to draw this to a close... I suppose it would be really interesting to get, I suppose, two or three key thoughts from you um, to think about for the next year. 
you know, the question that everybody asks when, when we go and see clients is what has changed with the US election result? How has it changed your numbers? And, you know, a general answer is actually not a whole lot. Clearly, starting points have moved. Equity markets are a little bit higher. So you might say that might nudge your, nudge your return assumptions down a little bit. And bond yields are quite a bit higher. So that's probably going to nudge up your, um, your fixed income numbers at the margin. But overall, at the portfolio level, when, when we look at it in the round, not much has changed. But the key question here really is, you know, what would make you raise your, your return assumptions is if, in fact, the Trump administration could achieve something that would raise long-term economic growth. You know, I think it's a big ask for anyone to raise the particular productivity growth side of the U.S. economy in a sustainable fashion. So we'd probably count ourselves among the skeptics how feasible that really is, say, through infrastructure investment and, and things like that, maybe deregulation. But that's certainly something we will absolutely need to watch. If we're wrong and there is actually progress on that front, that would be something that could lead you to upgrade your return assumptions. One other thing, and I guess it's, it's, it's an interesting point to make here, is that you can have quite different views of a one or two year time horizon from a 10 to 15 year time horizon. Things can go in different directions in the short term than you'd expect that to happen in the long run. In the long run, you'd expect valuations to win out. In the short run, we all know markets can deviate from, from fair values for, for quite a long time. So I think where the, where the US dollar in particular goes, it probably has the potential to strengthen more over the next year or two. But I think if it did too much of that, I think that could be quite damaging for U.S. corporate profits, for emerging market performance, all, the, all those sorts of things. So we don't think that's going to happen. We think it'll strengthen, but moderately. But that's clearly a key area to watch for, for 2017. If there's two or three issues that we're going to face in 2017, the one that, that's, that's front of mind for most people, and especially for us, is, is the direction of European politics. I think a lot of investors were slightly spooked by the referendum in 2016 and by the presidential election apparently going against expectation. I think that you, you have, though, to bear in mind that the outcome of the UK referendum was within the margin of error of opinion polls. It was actually very narrow. And the presidential election mapped onto opinion polls really fairly accurately at, a, at an overall share of the electorate level. It just didn't map onto the electoral college. So you take that forward and we've got elections in the Netherlands, France and Germany coming. To take Germany first, I think the notion that Chancellor Merkel gets overthrown is just fanciful. I think she's a sufficiently long way ahead in the opinion polls for the opposition not to make any significant headway. And although support for AFD has grown, I think they would have to produce the most remarkable ascendancy over the next few months to make a significant difference there. In France, I think that's much more pivotal because if Mrs. Le Pen wins the presidency. She is an avowed Eurosceptic. She wants to call a referendum in France. That's a scary prospect because France is the second largest economy in the Eurozone. And it's, you know, one of the co-founders of the European Union. That would be a very, very significant change. But again, if you look at the opinion polls, she would have to move from her current, say, 27 to 30% support to more than 50. And I don't think that she's capable of doing that. She herself has talked about how she would like to target the next presidential election rather than this one. And the evidence from local elections in France recently has been that when a National Front candidate gets into the second round, and it's important to note that all elections, presidential, local, parliamentary in France, take place through two rounds, when you get a National Front candidate in the second round, centrist voters tend to rally in order to keep them out. 
And you also see a rise in voter turnout in the first round. So I think it's a big ask for Marine Le Pen to win the French election. And that brings us to the Dutch election, where Herr Wilders and the Freedom Party are currently in the lead in the polls, but they don't have enough support actually to form a government as things currently stand. So I think you could get a, a fairly messy result there, but I don't necessarily think that the Freedom Party will be forming a Dutch administration. I think you'll get a, a weak centrist coalition. That brings us on to the other great political question. Uh, we know that the UK is going to trigger Article 50 by the end of March 2017. We know very little about the complexion of the negotiating stance that, that Theresa May and her government have. They've done everything they can to avoid giving anything away. But I think we need to look very, very carefully at the shape of those negotiations. And I think if there is a, a, a sense in which immigration is likely to fall and there's restrictions on our access to the European single market, then in the short term, that could have a negative impact on growth in the UK. And indeed, it could have a, a further negative impact on, on sterling. So I think you know, it's, it's, it's all about politics, but one shouldn't allow those political headwinds to obscure the improving tailwinds that companies are seeing in the shape of much better growth around the world, a, a much better funding environment, and still benefiting from the tailwind of low interest rates. Well, thank you both, Patrick and Stephen, for taking part in this morning's conversation. Thanks for having us, Kevin, and thanks for the great questions. Great pleasure, Kevin. Happy New Year to everyone. And to you both. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Also, you can contact your usual JP Morgan representative. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited.
in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 5514383280. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco JP Morgan SA. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated. And in the United States, by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, JPMorgan Chase Company. All rights reserved.